Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Senator Paula Simons, who prior to her appointment to the Senate of Canada in 2018, had a long and distinguished career as a journalist, including at the Edmonton Journal. As a senator, she's been one of the country's most constructive voices on public policy as it relates to the evolution of the news media industry. I'm grateful to speak with her as part of our ongoing Future of News series to get her perspective on developments within the industry the possible role for public policy to support it, and whether she's ultimately optimistic about the future of journalism in Canada. Senator Simons, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. You started in journalism at age 23 at the Alberta Report. Oh, I sure did. uh, Let's start with a question about the magazine itself. What was it like working there? And what was its cultural influence during this formative period of Alberta's political development? Well, for those of you who are not from Alberta or those of you who are just too young to remember, Alberta Report was a very odd, idiosyncratic publication run by Ted and Virginia Byfield. Some of the people say Ted Byfield, but honestly, um, as much as anything, Virginia Byfield, his wife, was the uh, guiding intelligence of the magazine. And it was a defiantly right-of-center, small-L libertarian uh, magazine that had very strong views about everything from residential schools to abortion to gay rights. It was not a natural fit for me as a young progressive. And growing up, my father had always subscribed to it. My father was a, you know, sort of a red Tory Jewish lawyer. But everybody had Alberta Report in their house. And I referred to it growing up as that fascist rag. So when I graduated from journalism school from Stanford University, um, and I had some student debt, and I came back to Alberta in the midst of a terrible economic downturn, and I couldn't get a job in journalism. I was working part-time writing, you know, press releases for the Department of Tourism during the Calgary Winter Olympics. And my father sort of finagled me an interview with a guy known Mr. White. So I walked into the newsroom to meet Mr. White, and Mr. White was about two years older than me, uh, and he would grow up to be Ken White, the founding editor-in-chief of National Post, the editor of of, of uh, Saturday Night, of McLean's. So I was 23, he was 25, and he convinced me to come work for the magazine. And I said to him, okay, so there are some ground rules, which is, which is pretty... It's a lot of chutzpah for a 23-year-old with a student debt. I said, I will not write about abortion for your magazine. I am pro-choice. He said, that's fine. 
I said, I will not write about, the magazine referred to uh, LGBTQ people as sodomites without apology. And I said, I'm not writing that. And they were like, okay, that's fine too. Uh, so they made, I started off covering crime and courts and uh, eventually became sort of their back of book editor. Uh, so I did all the, all the feature editing. It was never a comfortable fit for me intellectually or morally, but I learned so much working there. First of all, Ted Byfield was a brilliant journalist and editor and Ken White was a brilliant journalist and editor, you know, in embryo. Uh, we were aggressive in covering the news, but it was also a magazine that prided itself on its writing style. And I learned a tremendous amount about sort of the intellectual engagement with people whose views were completely antithetical to mine. I mean, we used to have the most over-the-top debates in the newsroom, you know, people shouting at each other. Uh, and it was a very, even though it was a very right-wing magazine, there were all kinds of leftists working there, sort of leftist anarchists um, uh, who found a, a, a niche for themselves. It's hard to explain. And, you know, and I have been, over the years, people have said to me, how could you possibly have worked there? But it would be disingenuous of me not to say that I owe much of my intellectual view of the world to what I learned there. Because I, I also learned what I was absolutely opposed to. You know, I went into the magazine pro-choice. I left pro-choicer. I went into the magazine gay positive. I left as an even more outspoken advocate for queer rights. And part of that was learning how to make arguments. Part of that was the fact that it was a rhetoric boot camp. And part of it was the fact that for all his peculiarities, Ted Byfield loved nothing better than a good fight and a good argument. And I, you know, when, when the magazine closed, I wrote a piece for National Post that started with, I am Ted Byfield's illegitimate daughter. And he loved it. People came up to him afterwards and said, you know, were you offended that she implied? And he's like, okay, first of all, you have no sense of humor. And second of all, um, you know, but I could not, I could not stay there very long because it was just, you know, at a certain point, I was the squarest of pegs in the roundest of holes. And I left to work for the CBC. And when I came to tell Ted that I was leaving for the CBC, he said to me, Jesus Christ, Simon, couldn't you have found some honest work as a streetwalker? <laughs> you subsequently went to the Edmonton Journal where you spent more than two decades. What in your mind were the biggest changes or developments to journalism as a craft over your time in the industry? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I had six intervening years at the CBC, I should say, as a, as a radio producer in Edmonton and Toronto, and then came to the Journal. And it was an absolute golden age, which you don't appreciate when you're living in it. I mean, the paper had more money than it knew what to do with. The newsroom was chock-a-block with people. There were so many stories we would file at the end of the day that the editors would choose the best ones. And sometimes you would work all day on a story and there just wasn't room for it because there were better stories. And so you really had to be competitive and you had to come in with your own story ideas and your own pitches. And so it was a very, it was a very competitive environment from the beginning because just to get space in the paper, you had to have the best story of the day. But I was there for a complete paradigm shift in the way we did journalism. I and mean, I was there for the, the birth of social media. 
And I was an early adopter. I was, you know, one of the first people at the paper to have a Twitter account. I was one of the first people to start doing things online and to push. I mean, at, at the time I was a columnist, the paper refused to put my column online for the longest time because they felt that if they put it online, nobody would read it in the paper. And I had to fight and fight and fight. And so I was, at the beginning, quite enthusiastic and idealistic about what this shift would mean. Because to me, it meant the immediacy, the immediacy that I'd had at the CBC, you know, when I was, the, you know, working on the local morning show. And then when I worked at the Arts Tonight in Toronto, we were doing live daily radio. And so what social media gave back to me was that feeling of being alive. And I was... God, it makes me sound like I'm a thousand years old. I was a, a, a pioneer in the idea of live tweeting events. I mean, I know this sounds stupid. It's like, it's like saying I invented the refrigerator. Um, but, uh, you know, I was the first person to, you know, live tweet debates of the Alberta legislature, to live tweet debate of Edmonton City Hall, to live tweet from the courtroom, to tell people what was happening in, you know, in, in court in real time. And I was, one of, you know, an early adopter of speaking out on social media, because I was a columnist, I had the privilege of doing that. So, you know, for me, it was a way to get story ideas, to connect to community, to break news in real time. I used to tell people that when 9-11 happened, we had no internet to speak of. So, you know, when the disaster in New York and Washington was unfolding, the paper decided to print an extra. You know, in the movies where the kids yell, extra, extra, read all about it. We fired up the printing presses and we put out an early edition of the paper with just with just the news about 9-11, not just the international news from the wires, but also the local news. You know, what was the situation at the airport? What was the situation at the, you know, at the Islamic Academy? What was the situation at, at the Tama Torah Jewish school? You know, what, you know, how was the city responding? Uh you know, who had who had family members in New York. And people went out into the streets of Edmonton and sold the paper on the sidewalk at rush hour because there was no other way to get people the news. And, you know, I'm not 107, I'm 59. That was, you know, that was that was in the 21st century. And so we went from covering the news that way to having a 24-hour website to having 24-hour social media coverage, to covering the news. And even then, I thought, this is great. This is, this is the apex of journalism, to have a fully staffed newsroom of people breaking the news in real time, providing commentary and analysis in real time, to be able, I mean, little did I know that we were sowing the seeds of our own destruction. You've spoken and written a lot about journalism since your appointment to the Senate. I want to get your big picture view on the state of the industry, Senator Simons. You said in a speech before the Senate in February 2023, the following, quote, in some ways, Canadians have never had as many options to be informed. Information around the world is literally at our fingertips. But in other ways, we've never known less about what is going on in our cities and towns without local reporters to cover city council and school board meetings, without local investigative journalists digging into local stories, without local feature writers telling local stories, unquote. Let me ask, is what you describe a problem that needs to be solved, or is it part of a normal pattern of creative destruction in a market economy? Put differently, are we witnessing a market failure or a case of disruptive innovation in your mind? Both. 
you know, the, the question is, there's, I mean, there's clearly a market failure. And for people who live in Toronto and Montreal, they maybe don't see it because Toronto still has viable daily newspapers, a plethora of them. I mean, four competing dailies. If you're in Edmonton or Saskatoon or Halifax, it's a very different situation. I mean, the Edmonton Journal used to have hundreds of reporters, and now it has about a half dozen. So if you're in a local community, and I don't mean a small town, I mean, you know, a city of a million people, which, which really no longer has, and I, I want to be careful how I phrase this because I have dear friends who still work at the combined Edmonton Journal, Edmonton Sun newsroom. So first of all, Edmonton used to have two competing daily papers that competed hard and kept each other sharp. And that competition was really good for both of them and for the local media economy. While those papers were folded into one, one newsroom puts out two papers with literally a handful of reporters. So despite the truly heroic efforts of the people who work there and you know, I count them as friends. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing a rock up a hill in a Sisyphusian struggle to tell people what is going on in their community. And at the same time, people don't seem to notice. It's like, it's like a false front building in a Western movie. People still see the paper, it comes out, the website is still there. And people say to me, oh, is it in, is it in trouble? And I say to them, you know, the building is vacant. It has been for three years. And recently, you know, there was some vandalism. The journal building was literally boarded up uh, because it's been left derelict on a major corner of the downtown. The Calgary Herald building was sold to U-Haul. You know, so those newsrooms are not coming back. And those reporters are not coming back. And people have gotten out of the habit of reading the paper. The CBC soldiers on. And I will say that lots of my journal colleagues have ended up at the CBC. But even the local private news stations, the Global and CTV folks, are really, uh, are really up against it. And they're not, just, they're not just dealing with the collapse of the advertising economy that kept those things going. They're dealing with a diffusion of public attention. My own dear husband came up the stairs from the basement today nattering at me about the weather and its impact on the Iowa caucuses. Because, you know, he watches MSNBC and Al Jazeera all day long. This is what happens when you marry somebody older who retires before you do. Um, you know, people are not even paying attention. They don't even know what they're missing. I mean, people are not screaming out, where is my coverage of the Edmonton Public School Board? But you know what? The school board's still educating your kids. It's still taxing you. You might want to know what they're doing. You know, is it creative destruction? Sure. I just don't know what comes to replace it because, you know, a website like yours is terrific. I mean, I read the hub, I read the line, I read the logic. There are all kinds of specialty niche websites covering politics. So politicians in Ottawa, you know, we're, people are still paying attention to us. Politicians love attention. So as long as, you know, smart people are still covering Parliament Hill, Maybe MPs and senators don't care as much. But, you know, there are not very many successful models of being able to cover the local news. And if you don't have local reporters covering local stories, you have a fundamental breach in the contract of democracy. I will come to the question of how 
smaller journalistic enterprises might be able to scale to fill some of the gaps that you're referring to. But before I get there, I want to ask a follow-up question that I've put to some of the other guests over the course of the series. Do you view news and journalism as a public good or a market product or somewhere in between? And how does your answer to that question influence how you think about these issues? Well, I think somewhere in between is the answer. And that might be colored by the fact, I mean, we sort of skipped over my six years with the Mother Corp. But, you know, when I worked for the CBC, there was, an, there was a very evangelical feeling within it, especially in Toronto, that they were bringing culture and information to the masses and that they were serving a public good. Because of that, I worked punishing hours. I remember once sleeping on the floor of my office while editing a documentary. And when I joined the journal, I was like, right, okay, not doing that anymore. Going to have some work-life balance because I'm not working for a public broadcaster anymore. That didn't work out very well either. But, um, you know, I think journalists believe that they are delivering a public good. What we never stopped to consider is what we were really delivering was new soul for advertising. You know, I mean, the function of the Edmonton Journal, those of us on the fifth floor of the newsroom believed that our function was to provide news and information and, you know, and uh, interesting feature stories and to tell people the stories of their community. What we, we were too stupid or blind or egotistical to understand was that our primary function was to provide space for the car dealerships to run their ads. And for the want ads to go, I mean, every morning I used to come into the journal and there were the nice older ladies who are probably younger then than I am now who sat behind the wickets and took the classified ads. And sometimes, you know, I would say hi to them and think, what a good person I am to acknowledge the humanity of the people who take the classified ads. What an arrogant little pissant I was. I didn't understand that they ran the newspaper, that those classified ads were paying my not, not huge, but still decent salary. And when the classified ads disappeared, nobody really cared. People were like, oh, well, they can go run in Kijiji. They can go ran on Craigslist. It doesn't matter. Who needs the classified ads? Well, they weren't just a, they weren't just an advertising stream. They were a revenue torrent. And, you know, when they went, then next went the big, you know, careers sections of the paper, the big job ads, then the car ads went away and the furniture ads went away and all the other ads went away. And suddenly we were standing there without a fig leaf of newsprint to cover our genitalia. Um, you know, we, we never understood that the news stories were functionally subordinate to the advertising. Not really. And if we did, we resented it. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, Poetry, we've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday, a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. I mentioned that I was going to ask about whether some of these smaller niche players might over time be able to fill the gaps created by the decline of a large traditional players. Can market forces do that alone in your mind, Senator Simons, or is there some role for public policy to support this transition? Well, here is the question. What is that going to look like? I mean, we have tried, you know, having grants to newsrooms. We have tried 
I would argue, failed with C18 to convince Google and Facebook, who are, you know, perceived to be the authors of the downfall. You know, no one's asking for Kijiji for a handout. But, um, you know, the, the, the gambit to make Facebook pay money, to make Meta pay money, has been a, a complete failure. And I think when we're talking about fig leafs, the $100 million that has been negotiated that Google will pay into some unspecified funnel that will somehow get money to news organizations. It's a drop in the bucket because I don't think people ever understood how much money newspapers were making. The journal made so much money in the late 1990s and early 2000s. I mean, a colossal amount of money. And there is no mechanism that we've come up with that can come anywhere close to duplicating that revenue stream. And this is the challenge faced by every startup. If people don't advertise with you, how do you keep the lights on? Well, you can have a subscription model, and some people have made that work. But for a niche publication, the other thing is that even the most ambitious local startup will never have the advantage that, say, the Edmonton Journal or the Edmonton Sun had of dominating public attention. You know, when I wrote things for the Edmonton Journal, and it had a circulation of, I don't know, 300,000 people, 150,000 people maybe on a good day read one of my pithier or more controversial columns. I mean, that, that kind of audience no longer exists for anyone. I mean, we all know that the attention market has fragmented into a zillion million tiny little pieces. So no one will be able, able you know, I'm not going to tell you this for every column. Some of the columns I wrote were kind of bread and butter. And, you know, you had to write, I had to write three a week, got to feed the goat. Some of my columns were really big and important. And on a big and important column day, you could feel like everybody read it and it made a difference. And governments changed policy because what I wrote, well, I mean, those, those days are largely gone. And so, you know, one of the things that drew people to reading those newspapers was the sense that they wanted to have the same sense of community and information that everybody had. You read the paper not just so that you would know what was happening in Gaza or what was happening at the Edmonton Public School Board, but you read it because everybody else on the street read the paper and everybody else at your office read the paper and everybody else in the school read the paper. And if you wanted to be part of a cultural conversation, if you wanted to have a shared language of community literacy, you needed to be part of that debate and that discussion. But as everybody has siloed themselves off, I don't think people feel that sense of the agora, the public space that the newspaper offered. So you not only have the insurmountable challenge of trying to compete with Google and Facebook and everybody else for advertising dollars, you have the even more insurmountable problem of rebuilding a culture of shared community that those big mainstream dailies represented. You alluded to the Online News Act earlier. Let me put a question to you about it. You were opposed to the act, which you described as a, quote, weird Rube Goldberg machine, unquote. To what extent were your concerns about the legislation, Senator Simons, contingent on a Bill C-18 itself versus concerns about government support for the industry more generally? Well, the problem with government support for the media is that then you get government-supported media and you get a media that is beholden to the government. So the part of me you know, the little bit of Alberta report that remains in my DNA is very concerned about the prospect of the media 
being beholden to the government of the day for its funding. Because even if you like government A, you may not like government B, which comes next. That said, I was equally uncomfortable with the with the provisions of C-18, which were basically, you know, a shakedown of Google and Facebook meta based on the false premise that somehow they had stolen the news, that they stole with the advertisers, and they did that by outcompeting them. So, you know, the C-18 premise was that news organizations would go into complex binding arbitration with the big social media players who would then tithe out to them. And that, that's all fallen apart. So Facebook took its ball and went home. And Google has made itself a side deal. So C18, as I always suspected it would, is not really going to come into force. And that's what happened in Australia, where this model came from. In Australia, everybody made side deals, and the Australian legislation was never truly enacted. And I think that's going to be what happens with C18. But in the meantime, no one can figure out whether this $100 million that's coming from Google how much of that is net? Because Google and Facebook were already making deals with publications. So Facebook has taken its money and Google, who knows? I mean, I asked uh, Minister Pascal Sanange when she was before the Senate for ministerial question period. I said, you know, how much extra money does that $100 million represent? And she said she couldn't tell me because she didn't know how much Google was paying in the first place. And then there's the question of where does that money go? How much of it goes to the CBC? How much of it goes to the big legacy companies. And then this is, you know, I'm circling back to your answer, question about creative destruction, which I never really answered properly. If we're subsidizing post-media and tour star, how does that allow any startups, right? You know, if we're subsidizing and keeping legacy dinosaurs on life support, I said, mangling my metaphor, um, how does that allow for innovation? And, you know, if you're Saltwire, if you're, you know, if you're the hub, if you're trying to compete, so, I mean, say the hub is trying to compete with the Ottawa Citizen, which is not a, not a, a perfect model, but the, you're sort of competing with the Ottawa Citizen. If the Ottawa Citizen is getting a big subsidy funded in part by the government and you are really not, um, then how do you overtake them? You know, at a certain point, do we have to let the legacy newspapers die so that something can rise like a phoenix from the ashes? The problem with that isn't just that it sounds hard-hearted. The problem is that I'm not sure that, that I'm not sure a phoenix can get airborne in in this climate. But I mean, I think at a certain point there will be I don't want to call it a regression to the mean, but at a certain point, people who are hungry for information are going to realize that TikToks are not providing it for them. And and the and the real calamity is, especially as we go into another American election cycle, where do people get access? actual, reliable, accurate, trustworthy information. And if people don't trust the media, I, I, I used to joke when I was a columnist that I was like Tinkerbell because people, my columns only had power if people believed in me. And if people lost faith in me, if they lost confidence in my reporting, if they thought I was torquing things or making stuff up or just being inaccurate, then my columns wouldn't work anymore. The columns only had political power and social power because people trusted in me and believed in me. And in a world in which people don't believe the mainstream media or don't believe, you know, post media because it's too right wing or the CBC because it's too left wing. I mean, where are people getting information that they can trust? And we can see, you know, my, my daughter who's 27, said something quite perceptive to me about um, 
the current uh, Mideast conflagration. She said all of her peers were getting their information about the war in Gaza from Instagram. And all of her bosses and, you know, aunts and uncles were getting theirs from Facebook. And I laughed at her and I said, in fact, nobody's getting information from anywhere because neither Instagram nor Facebook in Canada can share the actual news. So all the people are seeing are memes and quotations and things out of context. I mean, if there are no trusted news sources, this isn't just a problem because you don't know what's happening at Burnaby Town Council. It's a problem because you don't know what's happening uh, in Gaza City. You've raised concerns about the risk to a free and independent press from having the government involved in some capacity. What are those risks, Senator Simons? And how much of it is about perception versus reality in your mind? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, there are legitimate risks. There are legitimate risks. And we saw it with C-18. We saw it with C-18. I felt like a, a voice in the wilderness. It was like me and Derek Fildebrandt. And we don't agree on very much. Derek Fildebrandt is the editor-in-chief of the Western Standard, if you don't know him, um, who, are, who are being critical of C-18. Almost all the media was wildly positive about C-18. Why? Not because individual reporters or columnists thought it was a good idea, but because their publishers and editors did. And so you could see right with C-18 that the news coverage of that bill was torqued by the fact that people had their hands out. So it doesn't have to be Justin Trudeau or, you know, a future, uh, you know, Prime Minister Polyev or a Prime Minister Carney or a Prime Minister whomever calling you and telling you what to write. That's never how it works. It's the self-censorship. It's the it's the subtler throttling of what you want to say. It's the lack of independent voices. So, I mean, there's always going to be a problem. And, and then there is a problem, you know, that one day it might be a government, you know, it might be a, a Prime Minister Kenny who calls you and tells you what to write. Um, but I think the equally large problem is the loss of public trust, right? So, you know, I mean, uh, I've seen people say, oh, it's terrible, like the news on Global and CTV, I can't trust it anymore because they're getting government handouts, when in fact they're not. I mean, those, those funds were for print. So, I mean, once people lose confidence, it just, it becomes like a, a death spiral of public trust. So if I knew what the answer was, I would have been the editor-in-chief of Post Media, and I would have made a lot of money if I had, if I had what the answer was. I mean, I know it's not pivot to video. I know it's not move to the tablet. I know it's not take government grants. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, Jen Gerson, who uh, is one of the editors of, of your competitor, The Line, um, who, you know, it's also a, a right of center, you know, small C conservative kind of website, uh, shocked a lot of people when she came to the Senate hearings on C-18 and made a full-throated plea for more government funding of the CBC. She said, you know, the government already funds a thing that reports the news. Get the CBC out of advertising so that it's not competing with print publications, fund the CBC properly, focus the CBC's mandate uh, more narrowly on covering news and current affairs and not so much on, you know, baking shows. And uh, let the CBC, you know, that should, you know, her argument is that should be the vector the government uses to support the media. I think you could also make an argument that tax policy could do it. I mean, if you made, if you gave people big tax rebates for subscribing or for advertising, 
I mean, if you talk to small town newspapers, I mean, we've been talking about bigger city ones, but, you know, small town newspapers have a real problem. Government no longer advertises with them. Even their own town councils don't advertise with them. And the federal government doesn't advertise with them. Everybody's putting their advertising online. If you created tax incentives and programs to put advertising back into newspapers, that would help. If you did something with postal rates for newspapers and magazines that are delivered by the post, I mean, there are there are things you can do that are less tied to content and more tied to consumer choice. If you create incentives for consumers to make those choices, then it's a little less putting your thumb on the scale. I have to ask about the public broadcaster itself, which you just mentioned. What's its role in the future of journalism from your perspective? I, I happen to agree with Jen Gerson. I think I think she's absolutely right. I think if we don't have a strong CBC, we, we have a calamity. But we can't just have a CBC, you know, anywhere that we can just have an Air Canada, right? I mean, there needs to be choice, and especially in journalism. Uh, I mean, one voice paid for by the government is a bad model. But the CBC has never been more essential. And I am worried when I hear about cuts coming to the CBC. I mean, one of the reasons I left the CBC to go to work for the Edmonton Journal was because there were big cuts coming to the CBC. It was ever thus. And the CBC has actually, I don't think they get enough credit for this. They have been incredibly, incredibly nimble in, in adjusting to the online world. Because, I mean, who watches the CBC on their television anymore? Not me, right? I, I, I consume my CBC online. And they have created huge newsrooms of people creating basically print stories online. So you can, you know, you can get a little bit of a video clip if you want. Um, and, and, or, you know, you can listen to audio. I'm still a big, I'm, I'm, I still listen to CBC radio, but mostly in podcast. So, you know, the CBC, <laughs> tell this story. When I, when I worked there years ago, at, I, I was a documentary producer with ideas, you know, the big flagship sort of pointy headed doc show. And I suggested at the time that they should put some of their best and most popular episodes on CDs and sell the CDs at the CBC gift shop. And people were like, oh, you redneck Albertan. We would never do something crazy like that. You know, and I, I, I remember Max Allen, who was this, you know, this incredible figure in the CBC giving me this whole lecture about you know, the public good and we would never sell it. We would never, you know, it's appointment radio. People sit down at nine o'clock all across Canada and listen all at once. And so every time I see another ideas podcast, I'm like, yeah, that was my idea. I had that idea. I had that idea in 1992. Uh, you know, on balance, I think the CBC has done a brilliant job of adapting, almost too good a job because, you know, you could certainly argue that they are competing now head to head with newspapers in the newspaper space and taking advertising revenue for doing so. In that vein, I wasn't going to ask this, but your question prompts me. At different points, Senator Simons, this podcast is the seventh or eighth most popular Canadian-based podcast in Apple's culture and society category. The podcasts ahead of us are all CBC ones, including CBC Ideas. It strikes me that podcasting is amongst the most democratic and egalitarian means of news media production. You essentially need a, a phone and you could be a podcaster. And so in that vein, in a, a world in which the CBC remains a, a core part of Canada's news media ecosystem, how do we make judgments about ways in which it can augment what's happening inside the, the private market without competing with parts of the market that are functioning reasonably well? Well, I mean, one thing they could certainly do uh, is to be 
a helpful big brother to podcasters. I mean, I've, I've noticed this recently with British podcasts that I listened to. Some of them, which were independent, are now being platformed by BBC on its various, you know, so I don't know how comfortable the hub would be, but there are certainly podcasts that could be partnered by the CBC. The CBC could do a better job of working in communities to teach people how to make podcasts, to give people the skills to do that, especially in uh, minority language or indigenous communities, uh, to create, you know, a podcast in Cree or a podcast in Urdu or something, you know, that you could you could see the CBC functioning more like a truly public broadcaster in in helping that, but also in you know not competing not competing head to head. But you know the podcast space is strange. I, I my my staff would be merry mad if I don't get this in. I am the host of my own podcast, Alberta Unbound, a monthly a monthly podcast that dis, dis, discusses Alberta politics and Alberta cultural issues. And we have had more than 30,000 downloads. So that's not bad for, you know, I, I, I'm getting more bang out of that than I am about a certain, you know, certain other things. And the podcast, you know, uh, my last guest was Mary Moreau, who is the new Alberta Supreme Court Justice. Next week, I'm recording an interview with Corp Lund, uh, the fabulous uh, Alberta musician about both his political activism and his new album, which drops next month. So. You know, I, I, I've had some, you know, I've had Caden's Weapon on, I've had Kate Beaton on, I've had some, you know, uh, I, I did a whole panel a couple months ago about Alberta's plans for a pension plan. So, it, you know, it sort of covers the waterfront and I'm, I'm quite proud of it. But, but you know, 30,000 people, not very many people. I mean, I just told you how proud I am to have 30,000 downloads versus how many people read my column back in the day. So it's tough in the podcast space to find that audience and to sustain it. And, you know, the trouble with podcasts is that, you know, people, people start with great, I mean, how many podcasts out there when you look have five, you know, five editions and then people ran out of steam, you know, it, it's, they're, they're tough to sustain. And, you know, they're, they're certainly, you know, I mean, I look at somebody like Ryan Jesperson in Edmonton, who having been fired from his platform as the biggest talk radio shows host in town, made a successful, I mean, made a financially extremely successful go with his podcast, which runs daily and is live streamed on YouTube as well as in podcast form. And it's been a huge success, but there are not many examples like that. Let me put a penultimate question to you. Our mutual former colleague, Stuart Thompson, is in the National Post today, January 12th, on the subject of left-wing bias in the media. To what extent do you think it's a thing? And if it is, what, if anything, should be done about it? You know, I mean, this is, this is like the oldest, this is the oldest trope in the book. Are there left-of-center progressive journalists? Yes. Is National Post or Post Media a leftist organization? It is most assuredly not. I mean, nobody would think the Globe and Mail has a leftist agenda. Torstar, I mean, back in the day, used to be an avowedly progressive crusading uh, news organization. I don't know that they still perceive themselves in that way. I mean, I think what is true is lots of young journalists, uh, people who are still going into journalism, which means you have to be self-selected to be a masochist. Um, there are lots of young progressives who go into journalism. 
uh, newspaper publishers have never been particularly progressive. I mean, when Stewart and I both worked together at the Edmonton Journal, it was the most progressive paper in Alberta. But that meant it was the most progressive paper in Alberta, you know, compared to what? Um, you know, when I wrote for the Edmonton Journal, I was their leftist progressive columnist. And when I came to Ottawa, people were surprised that I didn't join the Conservative Party. So, you know, it's all, it's all a question of where you're standing. I mean, I, I think the idea that I love, I love Stuart to bits, but I, I haven't read the column yet. But I think the very fact that, that the National Post exists and that Stuart Thompson writes for them sort of puts the lie to the premise of, of the enterprise. Let me put a final question to you. Based on everything we've discussed today, Senator Simons, and your enterprising work uh, in the Senate on these issues, are you ultimately optimistic or pessimistic about the future of journalism? Well, it depends what we mean by journalism. Am I pessimistic about the future of big newspaper chains? Yes. Am I pessimistic about the future of journalism as I knew it? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke, Sean. I actually had a dream last night that I was in a newsroom made up of former Edmonton Journal writers and editors who were putting out a paper and printing it and handing it out to people. I mean, that's like, that's like literally my dream. Um, and so I think that there are enough smart, young, entrepreneurial, ingenious people who want to share stories. They're not going to be doing them in dead tree broadsheets. So the question of what journalism looks like is going to be very different. I mean, the question is, at what point are Canadians going to wake up and realize that they are reading, you know, that they are relying on vectors that are no longer sustainable? I mean, and I really do think that there may have to be even more creative destruction before the little phoenix eggs get their chance to gestate in the ashes. But I have to believe, and I, and I know that it's true because I see people, I'm not on Twitter anymore. I quit in January of last year. I'm on Mastodon, which is a nice space. And, you know, there are people who, are, who, are, who really want to know what's happening in Ottawa. There are people who read my Mastodon feed and my Facebook page to find out what's going on and who are engaged. There are people who listen to my podcast or subscribe to my YouTube channel because they want to know. And eventually, people in communities are going to realize that they need to have sources of information. And maybe advertisers are going to realize that Facebook and Google are selling them fake impressions. Maybe advertisers are going to realize that actually there is value to advertising in local markets, in local, in local vectors to reach their audiences. I mean, I'm never convinced that if you buy a Facebook ad or a Google ad, you know, yeah, they tell you, oh, it's, it's very precise and you can get exactly the right person. When was the last time you bought something because you saw a Facebook ad that, ma that, made, that made you buy the thing? So, I mean, I think in some ways it's the advertising industry that is going to have to have a road to Damascus moment and realize that if, you know, the algorithm is not the magic answer to making sales. And maybe we need to think about different ways to get information to people, not just news, 
but consumer information because, you know, I mean, and finally, I, I, I want to say this. I mean, I left Twitter for all kinds of reasons, but one of them was that the noise to signal ratio was all out of whack. I mean, we're watch, you know, we watched Elon Musk in real time drive his car off a cliff. Uh, Facebook also major layoffs and financial hiccups and Google the same. I mean, Google searches have become almost useless because you search the thing and the first five things that come up are not the thing you were looking for. They are ads that are vaguely adjacent to what you were searching for. So I think as the quote unquote legacy social media platforms also face an existential crisis. I mean, Twitter is, Twitter is, Twitter is X. Um, it is an X parrot. Um, Facebook, how many people under 40 are there at all? So, you know, the people thought they had the advertising solution figured out. But I think as the social media platforms also undergo their own existential crisis, we're going to find out that none of these things, you know, everything is written in sand. And when the next wave comes up, there'll be another new thing. And the one fundamental that remains is that if we want to have healthy communities and healthy democracies, people need access to reliable information. And I have to believe, otherwise, you know, I, I, otherwise I have to go out and lie in the minus 37 degrees and fall asleep in the snow. I have to believe that at some level, people are going to demand that information. And I have to believe that smart, young, entrepreneurial storytellers are going to find a way to give it to them. What a thoughtful way to wrap up what's been a tremendously thoughtful conversation. Senator Paula Simons, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Hub Dialogues featuring content for our Future of News series. For more on the series, go to our website, www.thehub.ca. This podcast was made possible thanks to the generous and ongoing support of the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Meta is a contributor to the Hub's Future of News series. We thank them for their ongoing support. Today's program host was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. The Hub Dialogues are produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.